you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. For now, we're going to come before God in His Word, and we believe at City on a Hill when we hear from the Bible. We aren't hearing merely the words of any man or woman, but God Himself. And so we come before God's Word today. If you have uh, phone, screen version, or paper version, if you are in the room or online, uh, please join me in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And I'm going to be reading from verse 7 to 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7 to 18. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, it's so good to be with you this morning. Uh, If we haven't had the pleasure of meeting yet, my name is Neil. Uh, I get the pleasure of being one of the pastors here at City on a Hill. Uh, This weekend actually marks uh, 10 years since I first came to City on a Hill. Uh, So uh, that's pretty exciting. News to my wife. She's like, "Mm, all right. Uh, How about we pray uh, as we dive into God's Word this morning? Gracious Father, we just want to thank you for your word and that by your word you reveal yourself to us. Lord, would you just give us eyes to see, you give us tongues to taste, ears to hear this morning. Would you just do the miraculous work of of transforming us into the likeness and image of your son Jesus? Lord, I pray that just what I have to say would be well-pleasing in your sight. We pray these things in the mighty, mighty name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen. Uh, Well, this uh, this just past week was another anniversary. It was actually my daughter, Jamie, was her 12th birthday. Yeah, it's good, right? Yeah, made it. 
Uh, and, uh, you know, and when that happens, you know, the, the, the Facebook memories pop up and you, and you remember birthdays and birthday parties and that kind of thing. And, and I began remembering, you know, the, what, what she was like when she was younger. And it reminded me of, of some of the stages that kids go through when they're growing up. Uh, and some of those stages are really cute, right? You know, you've got a little uh, a girl, and they finally get enough hair, and you can kind of put their hair up on top of the thing, and you get a little palm tree thing that's, you know. You know. Uh, and, and when they're, um, they're, they're learning how to, to wave goodbye, and they actually wave like this, uh, or, or when they're learning how to talk, and they're, and they're trying to perform words together, and they kind of come up with, with funny names for different things, like uh, lasagna in our house was bazinga. I'm not sure how it goes there, but that's what we still call it because that's what our kids called it when they were young. Uh, and it's lucky that there are these cute stages because there's other stages that aren't so cute, right? You know, there's the, the not sleeping stage or there's the, the, the toilet training stage because that's kind of messy or there's the, I don't like that stage, right? There's these uh, stages that aren't as good. And one of those stages that kind of starts off really cute but then kind of just seems to drag on forever, is the why stage. Right? If you have kids, you know what this is like. It's, it's when they start asking why about anything and everything just kind of ad nauseum. You know, and like at first you're kind of like, oh, you know, they're, they're so inquisitive. They're so smart. You know, they're trying to figure everything out. And so they ask things like, you know, well, where, where's mum? Oh, mum's out doing the shopping. Why? Well, because we need, we need food to eat. Why? Well, because uh, that's how our bodies work. We, we need energy, you know, we get that from food. It's like, why? Well, because that, that's how God made us. Why? And at that point, it's like, I, I don't know, man, like, you're on your own from here on out. And I think at that point, they're just, you know, trying to, trying to make me feel dumb. Because then at that point, they're like, why? What else? Because there's, there's kind of only so many whys, right, that we can ask until we get down to the bottom and there's, there's no more whys left to ask. And they, you know, I think kids, they, they eventually kind of grow out of that phase and perhaps that's just because they're kind of, you know, resigned to the fact that my answers are just terribly unsatisfactory and they kind of give up. But, but asking serious why questions actually taps into the, the most important questions that we could ask about life. Like, why did God create everything? Well, what is his purpose in creating the world for, for you and me in it and for every act of his providence until now? Or if we're going to kind of make that a bit more per personal, why did God create you? Well, what is God's ultimate purpose in your life, in, in all of his dealings with you? in all that he does in you? Well, what is it that is the, the ultimate purpose for all that God does? Sometimes the, the answers that we get given to those questions, maybe you've been told, is that well, you know, the, the reason that God created all things is because he, he desired fellowship. Like to, to, he wanted something to be in relationship with. Or, or maybe it's that because you know, God is love and he, he needed something upon which that love could be expressed. And so he, he created all things so that he could love and that they could love him back. And, and those are kind of, you know, they're, they're nice ideas. 
apart from the fact that they're almost kind of blasphemous. And the reason is because they imply that the reason for God's creation is that it arose from some kind of unfulfilled need within God himself, that there was something kind of deficient in himself. And so the answer to that was for him to create us, as if somehow we're the solution to his problem. And so what did he do? He created a bunch of just ungrateful, selfish God-haters to kind of fulfill that need in himself? So there's, there's no deficiency of relationship or, or need to express love because the God of the Bible, he's, he's a triune God. He is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all in perfect relationship of self-giving love. And, and so in God, there's, there's no deficiency. There, there's, there's no need that motivates any of God's actions. So, so what is God's ultimate purpose? What is his reason for all that he does? We see that when we look at Scripture, we, we see that just from beginning to end, time and time again, that, that at the bottom of everything, that, that when you keep asking the why question and, and you get to the point where there's no more whys to ask, we, we, we see that what, what God desires most the, the reason for all that he's, he does is for the glory of his name. This is, this is what drives the universe. This is why everything exists. And we see this throughout all of Scripture. It's the, the testimony of Scripture just time and time again. So a, a few kind of just really quick examples. A few with us last year when we looked at Exodus. Exodus 14, 4 says that God hardens Pharaoh's heart for God's glory. Psalm 106, 8 says that he saved people from Egypt for his namesake. And then even when his people, Israel, they rebel against him, the, the way that God deals with them is for his own glory. Isaiah 48, 9 says, For my namesake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. In 1 Samuel 12, 22, it says that God won't forsake his people for his namesake. Psalm 23, famous psalm, verse 3 says that he leads us in paths of righteousness for his namesake. In, in chapter three, or, uh, chapter 1 sorry, of, of Ephesians, that, that great passage that talks about the incredible blessings that we have in Christ and who we are in Christ, three times it tells us in there that he does all of that in us for the praise of his glory. And so time and time again, and that's just a, a small sampling, time and time again, the reason that God gives for why he does what he does is for his namesake, it's for his glory. And so what do we mean when we're, we're, we're talking about glory? Well, there's two important words that, that Scripture uses for glory. Uh, and the first is the Hebrew word that we find in the Old Testament, which is kavod. Uh, and that uh, gives this, this sense of weight or, or heaviness. I mean, we, we, we might speak of the, the weight of glory, which is actually what it says in, in 2 Corinthians, in the next chapter that we'll be looking at. Uh, verse 4.17 says, uh, chapter 4.17 says, For this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Because uh, often value 
It is determined by weight. And so if you, if you think of, you know, precious stones and metals and gemstones, like, like gold or diamonds, and their, their value it is determined by their weight. And, and so glory and worth and value are all kind of related concepts. And, and so when we think about God, God has glory that, that far exceeds anyone and anything else because he is of infinite worth and value. And so when we experience glory, we, we experience glory when we're in the presence of something of exceeding value, right? Like if you, know, if you, if you imagine you're holding a ginormous diamond in your hands, then, then you'd all be in, in worth of how much it is worth. And there's a, there's a weightiness to that experience. See, this is, this is why we, we go on holiday to, you know, to the beach or, or to the oceans or to, to the mountains and why we want to travel. Because our, our souls are drawn to the, the glory of creation that's absolutely universal. I mean, no one comes to Melbourne for the, for the glory of creation, right? Like, I live out in French Gully. Like, it's nice. There's trees down near the, the bottom of the Dandenong Ranges. Uh, and, and that's kind of known as the, the foothills, right? Uh, a few years ago, I uh, got the, the pleasure of being able to, to, to go with a team of people from this church to India. Uh, and there we were in uh, the foothills of the Himalayas, all right? So not like the, not the real Himalayas, that was still a long way up. This is called the, the, the foothills of the Himalayas. Uh, and, and one Sunday morning, I had the, the pleasure of, of preaching at one of the churches there, and I thought, I wonder how high we are. And so I kind of looked up the altitude of this church, and get this, the, the church that's just in the foothills was higher than the highest peak in Australia, higher than Mount Kosciuszko, right? And that's just the foothills. I mean, that's why no one comes to Melbourne. For, no one comes to the foothills to experience the glory of creation in Melbourne, right? But this is... This is why we love to travel. It's why we love to, to get out of here, because our souls long to experience something that is glorious. And, and there, is a, there is a weightiness and a heaviness in that experience. And, and so Scripture tells us that God created all of those things, the, the mountains and the oceans and, and the trees and the, the animals like penguins and koalas and donkeys. And in fact, all of the universe because it would reveal to us his glory. So that's kavod. The second word uh, the uh, Scripture uses is, in the Greek, in the, the New Testament, that word is doxa. Uh, and this word has the, the, the kind of sense of uh, splendor and, and brightness and excellence. And so when the, the Bible is talking about the glory of God, it's talking about the, just the all-surpassing greatness and beauty and perfection and infinite worth of God that should lay heavy on our souls. And so start from start to finish, this is what the Bible is constantly about. That the, the end for which God created the world, the, the thing that drives God is his own glory. That in everything he does, every providence, every dealing he has with men and women, with you and me. It is all ultimately for the glory of his name. And it is right, therefore, for him to demand that we praise and glorify him. 
See, God is pervasively God-centered. Now, this, this idea that God himself is God-centered is actually uh, proves to be, for, for many people, just a, an obstacle to faith. I mean, I mean, doesn't that just kind of make God, like, selfish and self-centered? You know, if, if God is all about himself, like, isn't that just the, the height of arrogance? Doesn't, like, Jesus commands that we, you know, love our, fa- uh, that we love him more than our own family. Doesn't that kind of mean he's some kind of uh, egotistical maniac? Uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, you might have heard of him as a great Christian theologian and author. He, he didn't come to faith until he was 29 years old. Uh, and he explains that one of the reasons, or one of the great obstacles in him coming to believe in the God of the Bible was that when, it, when he read the Psalms, the, the constant demands from God for people to praise and worship him, for him, made God seem like he's, he's kind of just self-absorbed and insecure. He, he said it was like God was craving for our worship, like a vain woman who wants compliments. See, the, the question that, that resounds for many is, is, why would you want to worship a God who is all about self-exaltation? Who, who is constantly pointing to his own greatness and, and constantly telling people that they should recognize that greatness and, and tell him how much you like it? See, God's pervasive God-centeredness can be a, a huge obstacle for many people. But this can actually also be uh, an obstacle, not, not just for, for non-Christians, for unbelievers, but even for believers, this, this idea can kind of make us uncomfortable. You know, I mean, you know, it, it's easy for us to understand that, that we ourselves should be God-centered. Perhaps we, but perhaps we struggle with the idea that God himself is God-centered. You know, that, that, that we should be Christ-exalting makes sense, but that Christ himself would be Christ-exalting? Surely, surely that's not right. Have a listen to what uh, John Piper says. He's got some helpful insights here. He says, What I have found in my own life and in the life of many others is that God's God-centeredness is the test of whether our own God-centeredness is real. Do, do I rejoice in God's unwavering commitment to uphold and display his glory? Do I rejoice in God's God-centeredness? Or am I God-centered only because deep down I believe that God is man-centered? So that my supposed God-centeredness is really man-centeredness, even me-centeredness. And see, what he's saying is this, is that if I'm not able to rejoice in God's own pervasive God-centeredness, then at the end of the day, then I'm really only praising God and worshipping Him and, and serving Him, not for, for His sake, but for my own, for, for what I'll get out of it. That when all is said and done, regardless of, of what I say or how loudly I sing, that it's not that I exist to glorify God, but it's that God exists to glorify me. And then when, when life doesn't turn out how, how I want it to, or, or God doesn't act in my life in the way that I think he should, 
then, then rather than me finding joy and comfort in the fact that God does everything for his own glory, then I'm going to raise my fist at him. I'm going to rage against, against him and stand in judgment over him. So, so why is it good and proper that God be first and foremost for his own glory without making him some kind of arrogant and selfish and self-centered egotistical maniac? Why is this actually good news? Well, first of all, it's, it's actually true that God himself is the most glorious thing. And it would be false for God then to, to hold up or point to anything else as being more glorious than himself or more worthy than himself. Because if, if God was to be driven primarily by anything other than his own namesake, then whatever that thing is, surely that must be more, more worthy than God, more, more glorious than God himself. There must be something else more worthy. And then if that's true, that God is the most glorious, then wouldn't, then wouldn't it be unloving for him to hold out to us as something ultimate other than himself? I mean, what could he possibly give us that's better for us than himself? Matt Chandler, he says this, he says, to gaze upon the beauty, glory, magnitude, and might of the creator, of God of the universe, is what our hearts have been created for. And every other promise turns to ashes in our mouths. It is God and God alone that will satisfy the longings of your heart. The world swings around and goes, no, no, no. You, you need a partner in life. You need a husband. You need a wife. You need a, a boyfriend. You need a girlfriend. You need money. You need a good job. You need this. You need that. And all of it betrays. All of that doesn't work in the end. They're all good things, but they're not ultimate things. You make them ultimate things, they're going to turn to ash in your mouth. You're going to spend all your days chasing the wind. Know what you need, what I need, more than anything else, is to behold the glory of God, to see his magnitude, his might, his power, his glory. We have been designed for this, and our hearts are restless until they see it. This is why... The, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The Catechism is a, a set of questions and answers that help us understand who God is. And, and, uh, and this one starts, the very first question is, is this, what is the chief end of man? Basically saying, like, what is the meaning of life? Why, why are we here? And it answers the question by saying, that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, that, that link between God's glory and our joy can, can sometimes be difficult for us to grasp. So let me, let me, let's consider it this way. I don't think you can argue with the, the fact that we are hardwired to be drawn to glory. Right? Like, like we said, this is why we leave Melbourne to go on holidays. We're, we're drawn to the glory of creation. And so when you, you, know, you see that amazing sunset over the beach or, or, or that incredible view from the top of the mountain, that, that glory fills you with joy. And what do you want to do? 
You, you want to you share that, don't you? So you get out your phone and you, 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 you take your photo on your iPhone and you share it. But, you know, it's not like a screen this big. Like it, you know that ultimately that, that photo doesn't compare. The, the, the photo doesn't compare because the glory is in the experience. The, the joy that you get is in the experience of that moment. You, you can't capture that in a photo. The joy is in the experience of being in the presence of glory of something that's far bigger than yourself. You know, this is, this is why we go to the, the footy and we, we, we jump up and we cheer, we praise, and we uh, high-five the randoms around us whenever our team kicks a goal. And, you know, the, the, the more significant the moment in the game, like when it's the, the, you know, the kick that puts you in front, the goal that puts you in front in the, the dying seconds, the, the greater the joy that we experience because the greater the weight of that moment. See, see, true glory doesn't detract from our joy. It's not at odds with our joy. Glory is actually what completes it. And see, the reason that God calls you to behold his glory is because he is far more serious about your joy than you are. You know, we find the, the height of our glory in a bunch of men in shorts kicking an odd-shaped ball around. Or maybe the, the height of the glory is in creation, but that's good, but he wants us to experience not just the, the glory of creation, but the glory of the creator. And so he's saying, and so he's saying that, you know, that, that, that you don't want to worship God because he tells you to glorify him actually makes about as much sense as not going to the footy to, to cheer on your team just in case they win. Hey, Jethro, a bit later. Well, we'll get there. No, no. It doesn't make sense to not want to go to the footy in case your team wins, right? You don't want to cheer on your team in case they win the grand final. No, no. Finding joy in glory is actually what you were created for. Finding joy in glory that's bigger than yourself is what you were created for. And the thing that shows us, ultimately, that God isn't a selfish narcissist in demanding that we praise him is because the ultimate display of his glory is in the fact that he set aside that glory. That, that, he, that he came to earth as one of us, as a baby. That he, he put on flesh, born to a, born, a, a poor teenage mother who, who lived in just kind of relative obscurity. That he died a, a shameful criminal's death so that, that you and me who constantly try to steal his glory, that, that one day that we would actually be glorified with him. His glory is actually for our good. All right, so that's the introduction. Now we're actually going to get into our passage for today. Uh, I'd love to have your Bibles there open, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So how do we then behold the glory of God? And what does that actually look like in our lives? 
Well, uh, our passage, uh, it actually uh, compares and contrasts two moments or two revelations of God's glory. Uh, And one of those is kind of one of the most significant moments in the Old Testament. And that's when God gives Moses and his people his law or instruction on how they are to live. And so a a bit of a recap of of what this happened with Moses. This is a few thousand years earlier that God had, by his grace, saved his people from slavery in Egypt and and brought them out of that land. And that's where he gives them the the law or what's known as the, the, the Ten Commandments. And so, so Moses, he, he goes up on the mountain to, to meet with God, who gives him these, uh, the, the law written on tablets of stone. And then as Moses comes down from the mountain, what we see is his, his, his face is just like absolutely shining bright with the glory of God. It's reflecting the glory of God. And, and it's shining so bright that the, the people who were there they, they, they were too scared to look at him. They had to put a veil over his face. Now, now imagine with me just kind of how, how awesome that would be. Right? Imagine if you were there. You know, it's kind of, kind of terrifying but awesome, right? To, to be part of this experience, to, to see the glory of the Lord manifested like that. I mean, that's the kind of thing we want, isn't it? The, 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 an experience of, of God like that, that's, that's what we long for. You know, we, we, we pray for God to show us his glory. Let's read what it says. Uh, chapter 3, verse 7 it says this. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze on, at Moses' face because of its glory which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that has surpassed it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will it have what is well, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Now, there's a lot of complexities uh, we see in this passage. So I just want to kind of highlight some of the comparisons between the, 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 the glory we see in Moses and the glory we see in Jesus. But what I want you to do as we, as we consider that, keep, keep in mind... The, the gloriousness of that, that Moses event. Keep, keep that in mind as we think about these things. The first thing we see is that the, the glory of the Old Covenant is selective. That is, the, the glory there was just exclusive to Moses. None of the other Israelites were there. No, they, they didn't get to experience God's glory in that way. They, they could look on it, but they didn't have that experience. But what we see in the new covenant with Jesus is that it is inclusive. That is, it belongs to all of us. It belongs to all who call Jesus their own because this is what the Holy Spirit is actually working in us. Next thing we see that as glorious as it was, 
that the old covenant, that glory, could only bring condemnation and death. Now, why is that? Well, one of the ways Scripture defines sin is as a falling short of God's glory, that we have all fallen short of the glory of God. And this is what we see when we come face to face with God's law, that although it is perfect and is therefore glorious, it actually only brings condemnation and death because it shows us that we have fallen short, but it's got no power to actually change us. It tells us what is wrong, but it can't transform our hearts. And so no matter how hard we try to keep God's commandments, we'll always fall short, and so it condemns us. Verse 9, it says, For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. And so how much more glorious is the gospel of Jesus that actually makes us right with God? That the gospel of Jesus in which now there's, there's no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Next thing we see is that the, the glory of the old covenant has been eclipsed. Verse 10, 11 says, Indeed, this is the case. But what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Uh, one of the things I love about camping is being able to like, get away from the city and from all the, the lights of the city. And when you go out on a, on a clear night, it actually just looks completely different because there's, there's hundreds and thousands of stars that you can actually see and they kind of seem to just kind of suddenly appear. And, you know, we, we, we say that the, the, the stars come out at night, but, you know, the, the reality is, you know, they're actually always there, right? Yeah? John Kelvin, he says this, that just as the moon and the stars, though they are themselves bright and spread their light all over the earth, yet vanish before the greater brightness of the sun, so the law, however glorious in itself, has no glory in the face of the gospel's grandeur. See, that's why it's coming to an end, because the glory of God in Jesus is so infinitely more glorious and what Moses experienced, as awesome as it was, absolutely pales in comparison. The next thing we see is that the glory on Moses' face was only a reflection of God's glory. But look at verse 18. It says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So the word here for transformed in the original language is the word uh, metamorphosis, which is referring to a, a, a deep, intrinsic, wholesale kind of transformation. It's actually the same word that was used uh, when Jesus was, was transfigured himself up on the mountain. And see, Moses, he only reflected God's glory. But, but when Jesus was transfigured, that, that glory radiated from within. When, when Jesus was transfigured, he was, he was metamorphosed. 
And so he wasn't just reflecting God's glory, but it was emanating from him. And so this is what's crazy. The, the metamorphosis that God is doing in me and you is this. This is what God is about in the hearts of his people. That if you're a believer, then, then what he's wanting to do is to work into the, the deepest recesses of your life to, to transform your, your, your character and your will and affections so that the glory of God is wrought inwardly within us. And when he does that, it's, it's not something that's going to fade. It's actually increasing and internal. See, see, we might think that what, that Mo, what Moses experienced was, was absolutely incredible. And we think, man, it, like, if I just had an experience like that, then man, I'll be so on fire for Jesus. But what it says is that what God is doing in you, the glory that is being wrought within you, far exceeds anything that Moses had. Isn't that crazy? What does it look like? How, how does this happen? Well, I'm going to just finish uh, quickly on, on a few things from verse 18. I mean, who, what, when, and how. So first of all, who? The inner work of this transformation is the great work of the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, it says, uh, For this comes from the Lord who is Spirit. See, this is why God actually sends his spirit. It's what the, the, the spirit is chiefly about in your life. I remember uh, many years ago, straight out of high school, I spent a year at a, at a charismatic Bible college. And one of the subjects I did there was called the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And basically the, the whole thing about being probably charismatic was it focused on the, the gifts of the Spirit, and perhaps that's what you, you think about when, when you think about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Things like you know, healing and, and prophecy and, and speaking in tongues and, and the miraculous side of things. And all of those things are good gifts of His Spirit. But the primary ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life, the reason that He dwells within you, is to bring about this transformation, this metamorphosis in your life. So that's who does it. Second, who's what? What are we changing to be like? Well, it says that we're being transformed into the same image. And what image is that? Well, it's the same image that we're beholding. That is Jesus. So we're being transformed into his likeness because you become like what you behold. And so the change in us will be marked by this just ever-increasing conformity into Jesus' likeness. Third thing is, is when? When is it happening? Well, what's, what's happening now? Right? This is what is happening in the present, but it's slow, isn't it? Now, it says from, from one degree of glory to another. You know, you go back to high school, you think about the, your protractor. Right, with all its degrees. I mean, how, how big is a degree? Like the difference between degrees is like tiny, right? But over time, that trajectory is completely different. But see, God's work in us isn't just like an instantaneous transformation into glory, but it's, it's one degree to another. 
And so, although it may be slow, he, he's absolutely committed to changing you to be more like Jesus, degree by degree by degree. And so that should make you just incredibly hopeful for yourself and also incredibly patient with others, right? Finally, how? How are we transformed? We're transformed not by striving, not by, not by trying to keep his law, but we be, we're transformed by beholding the glory of the Lord. So to, to, to behold means to gaze intently upon him with all your affection, full of wonder, full of awe, it means to be so captivated by his glory that, that all other earthly desires, all other earthly concerns and anxieties, that they actually fade into the background. And so as we, as we behold the glory of Jesus, as we, as we gaze intently upon him with all our affection, as we do that, then we're being transformed to be more like him because you become like what you behold. And, and so this is how we grow as believers. What does that look like? It actually just looks like the, the, the ordinary means of grace that God gives us. We, 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 we do this by, by reading Scripture and studying it and, and meditating on it, because the, the Scriptures aren't to be an end in themselves, but they're to reveal to us the glory of God. We, we behold the glory of God as we, as we pray, as we set our hearts on, and minds on Him, and we're in communion with Him. This is why, this is why God calls us and commands us to, to worship and sing, that, that as we sing, we might behold His glory, that we would grow in our affection for Him, that we would be captivated by Him. You don't, you don't climb a mountain to be bored by the view. And the crazy miracle of this is that when we do that, beholding him, that's the very thing that God uses to transform us to be more like him. Because you become like what you behold. You know what? 90 minutes on a Sunday isn't enough for that. These is Jesus that glorious to you? As you think about your spiritual life, is it, is it characterized by beholding the glory of the Lord? You know, I think the, the, the reason that, that so many of us often just kind of feel like we're, we're, we're stagnant, spiritually dry, we're, we're lacking joy, we're lacking passion, we're still struggling with the same old sins that plague us. You know, we, we, we might chalk that up to many things, but ultimately it's because we've lost sight of the glory of the Lord. It's, it's not something that we're beholding. It's not something that we're, we're gazing upon with all of our affection and awe. But, but this is what God invites us into. This is why he's made you. This is why he's called you to himself. And listen to the promise of where this is going. John, uh, 1 John 3 verse 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what will be has not yet appeared. 
All right, we're getting there. It's not yet appeared though. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Yeah, like the, the transformation in us is often slow at best, yeah? One degree at a time. But our, our hope is not in how fast we're changing, but, the, the, but our hope is in the promise that one day it will be complete. One day we will be fully glorified with absolute joy. We're going to sing. Why don't you stand with me as I pray? Gracious Father, I just want, to, just want to thank you for your glory. Lord, we want to behold it. We want it to, to, to shape us and to mold us. Lord, would you, would you be so kind to teach our souls these things? We want your spirit to shape us, to grow us, to transform us. Would we be just so captivated by your glory that we would be known for the joy that we have in you? Lord, we know that this is the hope that we have, the glory that awaits, that one day we will see you face to face. That is our hope. Lord, may it be true for all of us. It's for your glory that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.